0: Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and I'm joined, as always today, by my illustrious confrere, Peter Silon, who this week is doing the podcast from London, if I'm not mistaken. Are you or are you, uh, are you still abroad, Peter?
1: I'm still abroad, Jonathan, but it makes no difference because we are always in the heart of things.
0: Indeed. And we always have this very interesting uh, dynamic coming from a slightly different background. We have a different, slight perspective on the world. But surprisingly, we do seem to have agreed quite a lot recently, which is perhaps good for us, but probably less, not quite so interesting for the listeners. But uh, we'll see if we can change that today. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure we will. But anyway, since our last podcast, which I note was uh, actually six weeks ago now, it's such a volatile time that there's been an awful lot of news since then. So there's no shortage of things to talk about that impinge on the financial markets in particular, which is our primary perspective. though not our only one. I should mention, because we spent a bit of time on it last time, we've lost the UK Prime Minister, Liz Truss. She only lasted 45 days. Uh, last time we did discuss that and said that her programme was completely idiotic and wouldn't work. And unfortunately, that was the view taken by the Conservative Party, her MPs, and got rid of her. So now we have a new prime minister in Rishi Sunak, the first gentleman of colour to be prime minister in our country. And that's an interesting and, I think, positive development. And meanwhile, of course, with the Ukraine war rumbles on, I'll say more than rumbles on, the Ukrainians have had some success. But uh, Mr. Putin has retaliated with a heavy bombardment of the infrastructure in Ukraine, which means they're in for a long, hard winter, I'm afraid. And meanwhile, we've had a further succession of interest rate rises from central banks in that time. So, Peter, in terms of where we are, what, what do you think has changed in the last six weeks? I mean, what, what are we clearer about, perhaps, than we might have been uh, six weeks ago when we were still uh, debating how far and how fast the uh, Federal Reserve and other central banks would proceed?
1: Yes, Jonathan, before I launch into uh, a reply to that question, I just wanted to mention that about two nights ago, I saw an interview with Boris Johnson, funnily enough. It wasn't very long, but at the end of that interview, I thought to myself, this is the first time in years that I've heard Boris Johnson sound vaguely statesmanlike. And it struck me how very often these politicians... They wait until they're out of office before uh, acting more like normal human beings. And that struck me as being strange, but uh, it's not the first time that I've noticed that. Now, what's happened since we last spoke, I think, is the realization with certain investors after this extremely sharp rise, not so much in interest rates, of course, in interest rates too, but in bond yields, and especially the longer ends of the bond duration, uh, where, for example, in the US, which I always mention as being the most important threshold and benchmark, the bond yield went from barely 1% to over 4% in a matter of months, certainly during this calendar year. It struck me that pessimists continue to believe that this bond yield has to go up to 5% and higher. But it struck me that the journey from 1% to 4% is a lot more painful than the journey from 4% to 45 or 5%. And so you will call me the eternal optimist, which I am, but I think that maybe the performance of financial markets this year, which, by the way, has left practically nobody unspared, we might have seen the worst now. And we may be getting to the point where, The market will look ahead and that could be reflected in inflation numbers in the next few weeks.
0: Does that mean that you think, therefore, that the Federal Reserve, there's been all this talk about whether the Federal Reserve will pivot or not? It's one of those, uh, I think, rather futile conversations, which is uh, designed to generate trade, really, by broking firms to get somebody to do something. Uh, You can argue the case both ways. But do you think, essentially, you're saying that the market is now bought into the story that... uh, The central banks have been pushing for a while that they were behind the curve. They've accepted they were behind the curve, and they've got to do a lot more to bring inflation under control. Uh, But as you say, we're now looking forward to a distant point where perhaps uh, all these things have stabilised a little bit. Is that what you're saying?
1: Put it this way, that's what I'm hoping and expecting. It doesn't mean it's going to happen because I haven't been by any means... Right in my assessments and forecasts during the course of this year, as you well know, whereas you have been extremely accurate in what you've predicted, and it has come to pass, so that our venerable listeners should probably listen to you more than to me. But nonetheless, as Moses speaking to the or the other way round, we do believe in the forecasting powers of stock markets. We do believe that stock markets, contrary to investors, even contrary to central bankers, are always one step ahead. And so this bear market can't go on forever. And if you look at the share prices of the best companies that are listed in the world's stock markets, which are essentially the quality growth companies that I'm always talking about, some of those share prices have been hammered to an extent that you wouldn't believe possible in spite of the fact that their business development and the outlook for the businesses in the next few years is somewhat hampered by external events, exogenous events like COVID and Ukraine and so on and so forth. But there's nothing inside these businesses that could prevent their continuing growth. So if the share price has been hammered while the business itself has been more or less on track. That must tell you something as an investor, don't you
0: think? Yes, of course. I don't dispute for a moment that the uh, the kind of companies you invest in will continue to power on in terms of their uh, revenues and to uh, perhaps only mildly modified in terms of their profitability. But I guess the question really is: is, what is going to happen to those bond yields? In other words, if they stabilise at 4%, we're into a completely different world than we've known for the last, well, certainly since the global financial crisis, where you know 4% bond yields, it's less than the rate of inflation, but it still will alter a lot of comparative numbers when you're doing analysis of whether to invest in equities or bonds. But are you perhaps alternatively saying that, or is the market thinking about, well, what happens if things do get worse, and then bond yields start to fall again? Uh, so they start to go down to lower levels. That will have a bearing on valuations. Because if we go look at your, your normal three main issues you look at, uh, Peter, we're talking about you know growth, including profitability, and liquidity and valuations. My argument would be at this point, uh, I hope you're right in your optimism. But I think we still got this massive liquidity squeeze going on around the world, and that's going to have all sorts of consequences. So if that is the reason that the central banks turn tail, in other words, they turn tail because of either risks that are cropping up in the financial system or because they can't take the pain anymore, politically or economically, it's not necessarily going to be good for equities because that will be a kind of uh, not such a good environment. So I'm still not convinced that... um, If you're right, that we're near the peak of the cycle in terms of interest rates, bond yields and inflation, that that's yet a positive for the equity market. It might be for your companies, but not for the equity market overall.
1: I completely agree. And the conundrum for the central banks is that, on the one hand, they've really raised interest rates very aggressively. But on the other hand, in real terms, the returns on cash or fixed-finger markets is a negative when adjusted for inflation, in spite of what some people would say that there is a positive real return if you look at the inflation protected the PIPs bonds. But nonetheless, there is a conundrum, in my opinion, for the central banks, because if they really believe that a double-digit inflation rate is here to stay, or until further notice is here to stay, then they've got to be a lot more aggressive in what they do, because then a 4% rate of return... Is way below the inflation rate. So they would have to double interest rates again from here, at least. Another conundrum is the fact that if you look at the prices of raw materials, whether it's oil or gas or whether it's other commodities, these prices have all collapsed in the last few months. And yet the inflation statistics, when they come out every sort of week or two or whatever it is, They haven't yet reflected the collapse in the price of raw materials. But sooner or later, it will be reflected in the inflation rates once you get the base effect and the lapping effect. And so if I was a central banker, I'd be caught between these two, if you like, directions. Inflation is still going up, but commodities and all these factors that constitute input prices are more reasonable as the economy probably slows down and potentially enters into a recession, as the stock market is told, are telling us. So that's the conundrum for a central banker who knows not a lot more, Jonathan, than you or I. Uh, they know a little bit more a few days before it comes out, but they don't really have much more insight. So one is left with what you said, which is true, stock markets could still take a frightful battering in a new leg, a downward lurch. But then the central banks are also very aware, that you think, that financial stability is just as important, in some cases more important in some countries, than inflation. So getting inflation down through aggressive monetary policies was at the same time not creating too much damage in financial markets and not creating instability in the widest sense of the financial markets, including, by the way, what happened in the UK pension fund arena with the liability-driven investment programs. So you've got all these different pressures from different angles.
0: Indeed, you have. And that's why it's such a difficult job for the central banks. And they rarely get it exactly right. And uh, one can have a lot of sympathy for that, because it is that hitting a moving target. And of course, there's so many variables out there, not least how consumers, businesses and investors are going to react to all these sudden changes we've seen in the most important variables, the the input costs, the output costs, wages, inflation, and so on. And what seems to be happening, I mean, here's one possibility. If we look at the US in particular, which is the most important market, obviously, it is still growing as far as one can tell, but maybe going into a mild recession or maybe worse, who knows. But there's still an awful lot of money sloshing around in people's bank accounts. And what seems to be happening is that because of all those stimulus schemes we had after COVID, they're using that money. They're going on spending at the moment. And for the moment, that's keeping people in jobs. And therefore, the unemployment rate is not going up as as fast as perhaps one has to say the, the central bank might hope, rather paradoxically. But that may well come to an end before too long. So it's a, it's a virtually impossible job that they have. But at the moment, it's very difficult to say, you know, given their mandate, that they've got any evidence for slowing down what they're doing. Because unless there is a, a blow up in the financial system, which you've referred to, which I think is quite likely, we'll see some symptoms of that at some point, they're not going to change course. They can't. They have no mandate to do so, I don't think. So that brings us back, for example, to the UK, the pension fund liability-driven insurance problem. And the worry, of course, is that while it's specific to the UK, is actually symptomatic of perhaps what might be a more general problem, which is that since all the banks have moved out of a lot of lending areas, we've seen you know, so-called shadow banking become far more important. Uh, that means insurance companies, asset management companies, private equity, all these kind of things. And there may be a lot, of, a lot of problems in there that we don't yet see, but which may start to come out if we stick with a higher interest uh, bond yield regime. So are you concerned about that? I mean, that seems to be the most significant downside risk at the moment.
1: You've put your finger on a whole lot of very important factors. Um, and I am concerned about that. In fact, I've just finished a newsletter called Hidden Corners, which addresses that particular problem, which I, I wrote it with one of my dear colleagues. And um, of course, I'm worried about that, because it doesn't help the liquidity squeeze that you mentioned earlier, that I just want to touch on, because these three pillars, which are growth, liquidity, and valuation, which you mentioned, while clearly growth, we know that it's slowing down. It may turn negative. It may or may not. I don't think it matters so much to us investors. Main Street will suffer. I'm not sure that Wall Street would suffer. Wall Street has had its suffering this year, while Main Street has had if you like, a little bit less suffering. But that's as far as growth is concerned. Valuation is a difficult topic because how long is a piece of string enough? And I don't suggest that we linger on this topic today. We might come back to it. But that leads liquidity. And the liquidity picture in the shadow banking system that you mentioned is very opaque. You have to do a lot of digging to find out what's going on. And because it's so opaque, you suddenly have a blow up like you had in the pensions fund market last month in September, I think it was, in the UK. But clearly, and we've referred to this in the past, all through the year, in fact, there is one thing that needs to happen, and that is that the dollar has got to come down. And it's got to start coming down very soon, because in so doing, it reliquifies really the system. And re if that's the right word, of the system is extremely important because otherwise it'll turn to a liquidity crisis, which of course will then morph into an omnipresent or quasi-omnipresent solvency crisis, which is the absolutely last thing that we need. So I think the mentality of the investor has to move away from considering the US dollar as the ultimate safe haven. And the dollar's got to come down, and and the liquidity position outside the U.S. must improve. There's got to be more dollars available outside the U.S. and fewer dollars available inside. And what happened to the dollar-euro parity only three days ago on Friday was extremely important, because for whatever reason, the dollar's value dropped by more than 2% in one day. And that is absolutely huge, considering that the dollar is the world's number one reserve currency. When it moves against other currencies, especially other reserve currencies, it moves in fractions of a percent. So for it to take a hit of 2% in one day is highly unusual. I hope it continues, because that is what we need most of all. That dollar has got to come down.
0: Okay, well, that brings us on neatly to another event which is playing out this week as we speak, which is the hugely important midterm elections in the US, where if the projections are correct, and of course, we don't know, but if the projections are correct, it looks like Mr. Biden is not going to be able to keep a majority. Well, he only got a very narrow, effective majority in both houses, but he's not going to have a majority in the Senate and he may well... Uh, not have one in the House of Representatives either. So that is a recipe for gridlock, or at least could be a recipe for gridlock. But it could also be a recipe for allowing certain policy changes, which may have ramifications for the dollar, as you say, which everybody is watching incredibly closely. I do agree with you with that. I mean, if we are going to get a, a turn in the liquidity cycle, we should see it in the dollar. And we're all looking out for that, hopefully. And that will be very important. What impact might the midterm elections have? I should mention also that historians in the broken community have been pushing the line that there's never been a midterm election in the last 40 years when the stock market hasn't gone higher afterwards to the end of the year. So we could get a sort of rally if that historical precedent is held. And the year of the midterm elections is also always, on average, the worst of the four-year presidential cycle, because there's uncertainty about what the president's going to be able to do from there on. So what do you think? Is there a prospect of uh, policy change in the U.S., or is it just going to be an already lame, lame duck president uh, becoming lamer still? What do you think? What's your view on that, Peter?
1: Again, my view differs from my hope. I'm not a fan of the current U.S. government, far from it, for all sorts of reasons. We don't need to go deeper into that. But clearly, it would be a lame duck. It's likely that the Democrats are going to lose their majorities in Congress it's likely, therefore, that he won't be able to bring out these left-wing measures that he has been bringing out. For example, that extremely inflationary package that was finally voted through, which he calls the anti-inflation package or something like that. So, the
0: reduction in inflation, yeah, the Reduction yes. in Inflation Act. Yes. <laughs> <and, laughs> ridiculous thing, yeah.
1: Ridiculous, because the result has been the exact opposite. So if you have a lame duck president who... Domestically can't continue with his program. That obviously, certainly for observers like myself, is a good thing. Well, as far as foreign policy is concerned, it's slightly different because the president can do what he wants from a foreign policy perspective. He doesn't need parliament. But in that respect, I notice that this really does worry me as a Central European. That the Republicans in Congress have no more appetite to finance the Ukrainian war and to support Ukraine. They spent, I think, 25 billion dollars on helping the Ukrainians, which is a multiple amount compared with the biggest Europeans. And um, the next biggest are the British, but the British are not in the E.U. So my worry is that this will weaken the Ukrainian position and strengthen Putin's position, which is absolutely not in the interest of anyone, not even in the interest of those congressmen and women who are Republicans and who will not support continuing financial aid to Ukraine. It's actually in nobody's interest. But this is what slightly worries me. And by extension whether that could have an adverse impact, again, on the price of oil, which would have an adverse impact on inflation, and then we'd be back to square one. So those are very much the risks that we could experience in the weeks and months going forward.
0: Yes, I mean, the impact on Ukraine, is, as you say, could be potentially significant. We know already that there's still quite an appetite in certain uh, capitals across Europe as well as in the US for uh, some kind of negotiated settlement if such a thing can be imagined. And the, presumably the likelihood of that will increase if the Republicans do get a, a say in foreign policy. But uh, whether they'll be able to, as you say, to stop Mr. Biden continuing his policy, that's another matter. But yeah, it's a very good point. Of course, that could have all sorts of implications. Uh, we, we talked about that before. We don't know what a settlement would look like and we don't know what the impact would be. But presumably it would have to be, I would have thought, beneficial for the energy markets rather than the negative. The other point that comes out of all this, of course, is we've also had an election in Italy where we've seen um, Giorgio Maloney uh, become prime minister, described in the media as a far right uh, politician. I'm not sure whether that's accurate or not. That seems to be a, a pretty devalued term these days. But... It's symptomatic, taken with the UK uh, government change, which we've had, which has been very dramatic by our standards. It's symptomatic, of course, that, um, you know, politicians everywhere are struggling to deal with this very negative environment they're having to operate in. And the risk of policy mistakes, of missteps and so on is very high. I mean, that is another risk that I would say is keeping me awake at night. You've got governments that aren't particularly strong trying to do very unpopular things perforce because of the environment and they may well make a lot of mistakes and we could end up in a very very tricky place i'm thinking about the eu in particular here whether the the unity of the eu could be held together given what's happening in uh, italy in france and indeed uh, perhaps most significantly in germany what are your what are your thoughts on that peter my thoughts
1: on that are that in the last few years the italians were considered as more dangerous to the unity of the european union than many other countries or certainly the other big countries um, when Georgia Belloni came, well, it's too early to tell. And yes, she described as far-right. I listened to a speech, a sort of 10, 15 minute, quite electrifying speech, which she gave, where she underlined the role of the family and the family unit in society. I didn't consider that to fall under the heading of fascism or extreme right. Certainly not quite quite the opposite. The other thing that struck me and strikes me is that she's a lot less anti-European. In fact, I wouldn't call her anti-European at all, compared with her predecessors in the Lega party, who consist of really pretty rabidly anti-European politicians, and of course, Berlusconi himself, whose best friend is Vladimir Putin. But I think these figures that I have just mentioned are slightly marginal. I think Prime Minister Meloni wants to get her budget and get it pushed through and show it to the European Commission. I haven't seen anything yet that particularly worries me about the Italian intentions. Having said that, it is early days. But if you compare it, Jonathan, with what's going on in Germany, with the German government, I think that's really the area, the country where I would say we have the biggest problem with regard to european unity and their leadership role which perforce to use your expression needs to be filled by germany as one of the biggest economies in europe so that's the space to watch
0: and uh, there seems to be quite a lot of tension between the germans and the french for example about the way that the germans have gone ahead almost unilaterally with their Energy price freeze and price control plans, without really consulting the rest of the EU. Maybe they would argue, "Well, needs must, you know, when the devil drives," and so on. But do you think that's going to be resolved, or is it just uh, symptomatic of the way that things may be developing from here?
1: I wish it were resolved through the ballot box, but I mean, we've only just had an election in Germany a year ago. The government is extremely unpopular because all the errors that were committed by the German governments of the last 15 years especially under Angela Merkel, are now coming to the fore. The fact that the Germans wanted to preserve their industrial economic model rather than embrace with both arms what we call the knowledge-based economy, which is developing very nicely uh, around the world, but which has not been promoted and enhanced by the German government under Mrs. Merkel, that seems to be continuing the way that they were cozying up to the Russians for years and years ended up making them totally dependent on the Russians. And now they have to get out of that fix, which is made more difficult by the current German Chancellor, who's a very weak man. And of course, in parallel to that, how he's now cozying up to the Chinese because of the, I mean, admittedly, very large amount of two-way trade that's going on between Germany and China which is therefore understandable. But to cozy up to the Chinese just at a time when Xi Jinping has achieved another, whatever it is, five years minimum position of power uh, in the Communist Party and in the country, and in a way turning his back, or half his back, short his back, on his European confrers <laughs> has got to be the wrong thing to do. And so I think that the German situation is more dangerous or critical than what's going on in Italy. And it's definitely, as I said, it's a space that needs to be watched.
0: Well, let's then come back and talk about one other feature of of the global markets, which I think is interesting. Well, there's, there's two things, actually. One, I was going to mention China. And secondly, I was going to mention what's happening on NASDAQ and with big tech, which has been another big story, The, if you like, the collapse in valuations of big tech stocks. Not a surprise. They've been down a lot already this year, but they've really accelerated because we're now seeing that reflected in the kind of earnings reports they're producing and revenue forecasts they're producing. have had some quite dramatic sell-offs in most of the big tech companies, with the exception of Apple. Now, you don't invest in most of those, but you do invest in Microsoft. Do you think it's been overdone, what's happening over there in terms of big tech? In
1: certain respects, Yes. What's been overdone is a hammering of share prices of companies that are profitable and in a very good position. And in five and 10 years, they'll be even stronger. And You mentioned Microsoft. It's one of those. Microsoft's travails have more to do with a strong dollar than to do with anything else. The reason that we only invest in certain tech stocks is simply that, as you know, Johnson, we don't invest into loss-making companies merely in order to catch the momentum of a rising share price, which has been the result of the abundance in liquidity, which was the case last year. And that is not for me what I would call a serious long-term investment program. So they've now been hammered. I think again, in many cases you can't value them because they don't make any profits. And I don't see why I should invest in a company that doesn't make any profits. So I'm not necessarily the expert to answer that question. You're much better placed than I am to answer your question. But I would maybe say that it's the unwinding, it's been the unwinding of a huge momentum trade that had been going on for quite a long time, and that was presenting serious growing profitable companies with a sort of headwind from investors who were seeking a quick return. But that's all unwinding. Now, if your question is whether these shares have now reached the point where they should be bought, I really don't know, I'm afraid.
0: The reason I mention that really is a slightly different reason. I mean, one of the things of particular interest to me and has been reflected in the UK market is not because we have a lot of these closed-ended vehicles which are investing in alternative assets. So they're investing in renewable energy, infrastructure, all those kind of things. They've all sold off in the last few weeks, uh, quite sharply in the last few weeks, for two reasons, really. One is the possibility of, uh, in the case of renewable energy, sort of government taxation and so on, which is always a threat when you do make a lot of money. But also because the discount rates they use, these are long-life, uh, long-duration investments. And if you increase the discount rate, which is linked to the the, the bond yields, obviously, uh, you reduce the current value uh, if you calculate in a standard kind of corporate finance way. But that is also true of some of the companies you invest in, is it not? I mean, if you've got a large company which has made a lot of money, is regularly profitable, high return on capital, uh, got a high degree of pricing power, there's just this one-off effect of a valuation change because the discount rate applied, rightly or wrongly by investors, uh, has gone up. So it just explains why share prices of even the best companies have come down significantly this year. But of course, the differences in the outlook the outlook for those kind of companies, and indeed for the kind of investment funds I've been talking about with uh, infrastructure and so on, uh, remain pretty positively if we're going to remain in a relatively high inflation environment, certainly better than other types of company anyway.
1: I've never been a great disciple of automatically adjusting your discount rate upwards or downwards when you're putting a value to the other future cash flows of what I call quality growth businesses, which have no debt I don't really intellectually grasp how a company that has no debt should be beholden to the vagaries of the bond markets, even when bond yields rise as sharply as they have this time round, this year. And I can tell you that we haven't altered our discount rate before, in other words, last year, the year before last, when interest rates were at zero, we had a discount rate which was arguably too high. But now that the yields have exploded, we haven't actually touched the discount rate, because I don't really see why we should, given the absence of debt. Now, where a company is very indebted and makes no profits, then of course, its share price is going to be heavily affected, and the discount rate is going to be heavily affected as well for future cash flows. But that's a totally different situation. And um I have, obviously, watched in dismay how the markets have simply simply shrugged off this argument that I'm making and have hammered the share prices of companies that are not indebted, where the discount rates had no need to go up with the bond yields, and whose outlook is, admittedly, as I said earlier, slightly affected by things beyond anyone's control, like COVID. And what's happening in China, but the business model remains very much largely intact. And the only change has been a little bit of a downgrade in the growth rate, and please note the words growth rate of their earnings in the next few years. So they're still growing. They're growing at rates which are slightly lower, but I mean that's far removed. From your average cyclical business, or far removed from the outlook for your average Nasdaq-listed tech
0: business. Those are all, I think, very fair points. I think the the more direct point for the kind of infrastructure things I'm talking about is that you know if bond yields are at four percent and you were discounting—I'm not saying this is the uh, case—you were offering a yield of six percent, the relative attraction of those two things is going to change, and I think we're not going to see that in the short term because. People are so scared of inflation that they're not going to think about bonds. But if we stay at a level where bond yields are 4%, it is, as I said, a completely new regime. And so there has to be some kind of adjustment because there will be flows from one type of asset to another. You're just going to see investors going from eventually, particularly if inflation starts to come down, as you say, uh, but bond yields stay relatively high for a period. You're going to see more and more money going into fixed interest, notwithstanding, if they believe that inflation is genuinely coming down. And that must, by definition, does take away some of the flows into alternative of all sorts, uh, including equities. But as you say, the paradox is that, as we know, that the equity market moves in cycles. And there are phases where it goes from being liking defensive companies to liking cyclical companies and so on. And that's just part of life, essentially. But uh, that's something we have to live with, I think.
1: If I can just say to conclude what we said a few minutes ago, the journey from a one percent bond yield to a four percent or four and a quarter percent bond yield is much more dramatic than the journey from a four and a quarter percent bond yield to say even a five percent bond yield. So I think that the damage, most of the damage, has been done. The thing to look at now, to look for now, is number one, the bond yields have to have reached some kind of a ceiling generally speaking. And number two, that dollar has got to come down and the system has to be re Because if that happens, there'll be far less propensity for investors to, to shun traditional fixed income and equity markets in search for exotic, esoteric investments which are even more difficult to forecast than the traditional ones.
0: I also um, noted a comment from the Bank for International Settlements the other day, which is the sort of central bank's bank, if you like. Uh, and they were saying that on their assessment, you know, 20% of the world's listed companies are basically zombie companies. They won't survive if interest rates remain at current levels. That's a quite a frightening statistic and a way a reflection on some of the hidden consequences of the low interest rate, easy money policies we've seen uh, mistakenly sustained since the global financial crisis, certainly in the last year or two. I think what you're also saying, Peter, is that, as we know, there will be a point at which um, uh, market expectations change. And that could be a great buying opportunity. Uh, the worse it gets, the better that opportunity will be, of course. But the less likely it is that most investors will want to take advantage at the point of maximum pessimism. But I, you know, you mentioned China. That's also interesting. It's not entirely clear uh, there was a big uptick in Chinese uh, funds on Friday as well. It's not entirely clear whether people believe that the COVID policy is going to remain as it is, or whether in fact, in practice, it's going to be alleviated and so on. But I would also just mention Japan. I think Japan is going to become a very interesting market before too long, particularly if the dollar changes direction. Then Japan, notwithstanding, its rather completely divergent monetary policy could look very interesting and I think will prove uh, quite a good investment over the years to come.
1: In other words, next year is going to be a very interesting year for us investors. And you and I will have lots of topics to discuss to which I look forward.
0: We will indeed. And uh, it's a disappointing we can't give the definitive answer to what's going to happen. But we are very much, I mean, I am and I know you are, we're very much on full alert to try and spot the turning points uh, when, when they do come, because that obviously is very important to try and get those right. Obviously, it won't succeed exactly, nobody can but that's what keeps us busy what keeps us awake at night and what we will continue to talk about with great pleasure in my case Peter and with great pleasure in my case as well thank you very much Jonathan you have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast
1: hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen these podcasts are independently edited and produced you can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the money makers or m M&M and podcast website Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.